Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Three on a Match from 1932 with my wonderful guest, Christina Rice. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, I have a very special, very wonderful guest, Christina Rice, welcome to our show. How are you? We're going to talk about Anne Dvorak, so I am doing fantastic. Thank you. Yes, so today on the show, as Christina mentioned, we watched the film Three on a Match from 1932, um, starring the wonderful Anne Dvorak. And the reason Christina is here is because she literally wrote the book on Anne Dvorak. The book is called Anne Dvorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, written by Christina Rice. Um, We're so happy to have you back on the show uh, how was this viewing for you this time around? What were the feelings this time? Um, well, I've, I've seen this movie dozens upon dozens of times, um, over the last, oh God, close to 30 years. Um, and this time I actually got to see it with a group of people. So I did a screening for my birthday. It was my 50th birthday. So I thought, what, what do I want to do? And I thought I want to be surrounded by the people in my life who I adore and force them to watch an Anne Dvorak movie. And so, um, that was just really special. And there, you know, and a lot of people have seen the movie because they, they know me, but a lot of people hadn't. So it's always great to, um, to watch this movie with the crowd. Although we did have a 10 year old in the audience and I probably should have warned her mother. So, so they kind of ran out towards the end and I felt bad about that, but, um, otherwise it, it was fantastic. So that's one of the reasons also why I chose you for this film. People at home, my first viewing of this film ever was at Christina's birthday party and it was fabulous. It was so much fun. Such a great first experience for this film. Um, So I very much appreciated that. I'm going to get into the plot synopsis of this movie. But before I do that, I want to explain to viewers at home. One, I want to say Happy New Year. Yay, 2024. Welcome to the new year. But two, we're doing things a little differently this year on the podcast. Usually we do two separate seasons throughout the full year, but this year we're trying something different. Instead of doing two seasons, the whole year is just going to be one long season and we will give out one new podcast episode every month, but there might be extra bonuses here and there. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be a one episode a month podcast now. And this season, season nine is going to last all of 2024. All right. Uh, I'm going to give you a plot synopsis of this film, three on a match. And Christina, feel free to interject because normally what I do when I watch is I take a whole bunch of notes so I get the details straight. But because this was at a fabulous birthday party, I was very much focusing on the movie and I wasn't taking notes. So please feel free to jump in should you need to with this plot synopsis. 
Um, okay, so this movie, three on a match. It's 63 minutes long. Go watch it just for that. You get to watch a full, wonderful movie that is only 63 minutes. Yes. Um, it's about these three girls uh, who meet when they're younger and they're in school. And one of them is a bit of a wild child rebel. And her name is Mary. And she's eventually going to be played by Joan Blondell. Um, the second girl that we meet is Vivian. She's a bit upper crusty and a little snooty. Um, she's voted the most popular girl in school. And she's going to be played by Anne Dvorak as an adult. And the third kid, Ruth, is just smart. She has no character arc. She's just smart. And she will eventually be played by Betty Davis. So these three students start off in school together. Ten years down the road, they meet again. Their lives are totally different. Mary has gone to reform school and has eventually gotten out on the other side, doesn't want a life of crime, becomes an actress and kind of lives this very fun life. But she's not going to commit any crimes anymore. Thank you very much. Um, and then we have. Uh, Betty Davis's character, very smart, Ruth. Uh, she, after she graduated and was the valedictorian, she went into business school and is a secretary now. And um, then we have Vivian, who is Anne Dvorak, who is a wealthy uh, society wife. She kind of has all the creature comforts and everything she wants, but she's not really happy. Um, so when the three of them meet up 10 years later, and when they all share a match, which, by the way, in the past, they let us know in the film, um, if three people share a match, the third one um, is likely to die and or have bad luck. I don't remember if they specifically say that person will die or if it's just bad luck, but they associate it to World War One, where they were like, if if you had a match long enough that three people could be on it, enemies would know you were present and would fire at you. So you don't want three people lighting a match. So they made this whole superstition about it. But also they were saying in the movie that it's like for cigarette companies just to sell or not cigarette companies match people who make matches, match companies, they sell more matches that way. Okay. So three on a match and Dvorak's the last one to have the match. Oh no, she's going to be the first one to die, but that's not likely because she's rich and she's beautiful and she's got everything. Well, she meets this guy, Lyle and Lyle's the worst. So she's going to go on this trip. She's going to go to Europe for a break. She's taken her very adorable child with her junior. And right as the ship's about to set sail, she meets stupid Lyle, who's very handsome, but is nefarious. And he is involved in drugs. And uh, she gets off the boat, runs away with him, is sleeping with him, which for like 1932, oh my goodness, we know she's sleeping with him and doing drugs with him. Oh my goodness, how scandalous for these times. Um, and her kid is with her in this quote unquote den of sin. And so her husband, Warren William, comes and rescues the kid from being with her in this kind of not great apartment place. And uh, he falls in love with Joan Blondell and they get married and uh, he divorces, you know, and Vorak and she becomes a drug addict and has a very unfortunate time. And uh, her boyfriend, the worst Lyle, Lyle Talbot, who plays, oh, I'm sorry, Michael Loftus is the character's name. I was calling him Lyle Talbot because that's his real name, but it's such a villainous name that I wanted that to be his character name. Anyway, he uh he decides he's going to kidnap her son and make a few bucks because he owes a gangster a bunch of money. And one of the gangsters he owes is Humphrey Bogart in a very tiny role. And um, the gangsters catch wise. They want to be involved in this scheme and ask for a bunch more money. And uh, they're kind of going to get away with it, except that they're not because all the police are looking for this kid. And they're like, well, I guess we have to, like, kill this kid. And Anne Dvorak's like, no, 
I'm not going to let you. I'm going to write down where the kid is on my body in lipstick while you think I'm having like a big withdrawal episode from drugs. And I'm going to jump out of the window so everyone knows where my child is and I'm sacrificing my life for his and he will be saved. And that's what happens. The kid gets saved and Anne Dvorak sadly dies, just like the three on the match superstition predicted. And um, the other two women are happy and they're going to raise her kid for her. And um, they all at the end light a cigarette. And they are just two on a match and then they throw it away into the fire. And that's the film three on a match in a nutshell. It might feel as though you've seen it. That's the movie. Christina, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this wonderful film. Yes. I felt like I just saw it again. Thank you. <laughs> of course, <laughs> all the thrills right there. And I mean, so Anne Dvorak's performance in this, you had told us before the screening, Christina gave this like really wonderful speech, which I hope she repeats again on this podcast. But Anne was only 20 when she made this film and she hadn't made a lot of films and she's stunning in this movie. Like she is the standout in a movie with Betty Davis and Joan Blondell. Her performance is the standout and it's probably because she has the most to do as an actress, um, but she is haunting in this and she is magnetic in this. Um, what first drew you to Anne Dvorak and wanting to study her? Was it this film? It was absolutely this film. So yeah, when I was in college, um, you know, and this is when the, the, these pre-code films, which have been tied up in studio vaults for decades because they could never get, you know, once the, the code starts getting enforced in 1934, these movies can, you can't cut them. Like if you cut three on a match to make it code approved, it'd be like two minutes long. <laughs> so these movies just weren't available and people didn't see them. And so in the nineties, they started to get released on home video. So Anne was somebody I, I hadn't really encountered, um, even though she made movies into, you know, 1951 was her last movie and she's in over 50 movies. Um, yeah, most of them are not particularly notable and her really notable ones are the, the pre-codes. So she's also in the original Scarface with Paul Muni. And that had been kind of locked up, you know, both because of the code issues and because Howard Hughes was the producer and he kept it locked up himself. And so, um, yeah, so I started to discover these pre-code movies. There was a set of VHS tapes that were released under the banner Forbidden Hollywood that had introductions by Leonard Malton. And so when I was in college in the mid-90s, um, my local public library, the Glendora Public Library, had three on a match. And I picked it up and, you know, it's 63 minutes long. And as you mentioned, Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis are in it. I'm like, you know, I, I can check this out. I can, you know, kind of kill an hour or spend an hour not doing homework and, you know, it was a VHS tape and I put it in and, and there was Anne and I, I hadn't, I had never heard of her. I didn't know who she was and I've never been so captivated and so blown away by a single performance. It was like incredible. And I remember when the movie ended, maybe a couple of minutes later, my mom came home. And I said, mom, sit down. And I rewound it and watched the whole thing again. Um, so yeah, so this was absolutely like my gateway. Um, you know, as I said at my birthday party, I really feel like this is, I feel like this movie literally altered the course of my life um, by introducing me to Anne. And uh, at the time, I, you know, this is the early days of the, the, the World Wide Web. And so there wasn't a whole lot of information out there on her. And so, you know, I tried to do some research on her and, um, 
didn't wasn't able to find you know and I wasn't I wasn't a librarian yet I'm a librarian now I've been a librarian for like 18 years now but at the time um I just couldn't find a lot about her and so I I kind of put her on the back burner and then my final year of college I did an internship at a below the line talent agency which was a ghastly experience it was in Beverly Hills but the assistant at the internship was like kind of the first movie buff I ever met you know, so I grew up in Glendora. I grew up in the suburbs. And certainly, you know, I could talk to like the older folks about classic film, but he was somebody who was my age and he knew so much about film and I knew nothing compared to him. Like I felt like such an old movie hack. And so in this kind of pathetic attempt to kind of like impress him, I said, oh, you know who I love and I just can't find anything on is Anne Dvorak. And that totally did the trick. So he was like, oh, I've, I've heard of, you know, she's one of those people like, eh, I've heard of her. And, um, and Darren collects on Norma Shearer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you've been collecting movie memorabilia long enough, you have a stack of stuff you don't collect on that you end up with. And so the next time I came in, he handed me an original still from three on a match of Anne and Warren William Oh my God. and, and gave it to me and, you know, started taking me around, um, all of the different poster shops like in Hollywood that used to be there, most of them are gone now. And he took me to the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the the Motion Picture Academy's library where they actually had a clipping file on her where I was able to find information. And then I, I, I think within two weeks, maybe within a week of me telling him this, Turner Classic Movies actually did a tribute to her and played a bunch of her movies, including Three on a Match. And he, Darren always recorded things. So he always had a tape ready to go. And so he um, recorded all of these movies. And so on our lunch break, we would watch these Andaboric movies or after work when the agents left, we would just, and so we we bonded over Anne, over watching these Andaboric movies. And that was, you know, 27 years ago and he is still one of my absolute dearest friends and that just completely just set me you know on a journey like not only to to, to document her but I as I you know as I talked about I, I it, at my birthday party I was a really introverted very insecure person at that age and I could never um, really advocate for myself but I loved talking to people about Anne I could talk to any stranger on the street about Anne especially once I like designed a website I did I launched andevorak.com in 2002 which I designed on Microsoft front page and I printed up little business cards at home and I could always talk about Anne I could absolutely talk about Anne you know and then eventually just in the name of research went and got you know went and got my master's degree and got a job as a librarian and I felt like all of that kind of went hand in hand with Anne and it all happened because of of this movie and her incredible performance I love that so much um what I would love to know more about is Anne herself can you please give myself and the listeners at home a bit of background on Anne and also listeners at home. Usually I'm the one that ends up doing the research and like sharing this with my guest. It was so nice today to purposely not look things up because I wanted to be surprised by what Christina told me. So <laughs> please give our listeners and myself some backstory on Anne. Yeah, absolutely. So Anne was born on August 2nd, 1911 in New York City. So she was the daughter of performers. So her father, um, Edwin McKim, he was, he, he started doing, you know, kind of traditional legitimate theater, um, eventually like went into vaudeville and then did some film acting, not a whole lot, and then um, directed films for the Lubin Company in Pennsylvania. Her mother, Anna Lair, um, had started off in vaudeville and ended up having 
a respectable film career, like in the teens into the early 20s. I think her film career, you know, most of her movies are lost and nobody knows who who Anna Lair is. But I feel like she was very well received. I think she she was popular in her day. She wasn't Mary Pickford popular, but she was Anne Dvorak popular in her day. <laughs> so I feel like their their careers maybe paralleled each other a little bit. Um, but Anne's, Anne's uh, parents, you know, split when she was really young. She actually was in Anne Dvorak, was in some movies as a kid. So she is in um, a 1915 um, version of Ramona. So she was in the prologue and got really great notices for that. She did another movie called The Man Hater. So she did Ramona when she was four. She did The Man Hater when she was um, seven. Um, and I think that one's lost, although I do have some photos from it. And then she did... Um, when she was nine, she she did a short called The $5 Plate. So that was her kind of film career as a child. Um, her parents split when she was young and her mom um, made films on the East Coast and the West Coast. So her mom was gone a lot. And so Anne actually stayed with relatives. She stayed with her you know, maternal grandparents and, and aunts in New York. And so as a kid, some of the times she only saw her mom was when she'd go to the movies and she would see her mom on the big screen, which... Um, you know, obviously had a huge, huge um, impact on her. But she eventually came to Los Angeles when she was around nine and was reunited with her mother and her mom got remarried. She went to a private school, the Page School for Girls in Highland Park. They, they really focused on the performing arts at this school. And so that's, I think, where she got some exposure um, to, to music as well as dance. You know, she learned how to play the piano. Um, wanted to be a writer. So that was what she really wanted to do was write. Uh, she graduated, I think when she was around 15, 16, and her, her, her parents had fallen on hard times. And so she, she needed to get a job. And so she went to MGM and auditioned to be in the chorus. And the story that's told is that, you know, Anne was, was not polished. She was not a polished beauty. She wasn't particularly hip at the time. And so she showed up to this MGM um, audition with a long skirt and her hair in braids. And she was told immediately no. And she kept going to the back of the line like she wouldn't leave. <laughs> And finally was told, oh, fine, you could be, you know, you could kind of be in the reserves if somebody drops out. And pretty soon somebody did. She joined the chorus. So if you watch the early sound musicals at MGM, um, Hollywood Review was the first one she's in. And she actually slaps Jack Benny in the face and has a line in it. Um, but any of those MGM musicals between like 20, 29, 30 and into 31, and there's a chorus line, uh -huh. you can pick her out. You know, she was always aware of the camera. She's always the one kind of smiling the widest, flailing her arms the most. Um, she was really adept at teaching the routines to the other girls in the chorus. So she became the assistant choreographer to Sammy Lee. Um, she was just really loved on the lot. She became, Joan Crawford took her under her wing. So I think Joan helped her get a little bit more polished and, you know, taught her how to do her makeup. And I think she really tried to emulate Joan. Um, people sometimes, you know, I, I think if, if you don't see them together, you might think Anne early on looks like Joan. Um, and so she was referred to as the dancer who looks like Joan Crawford. Um, and for as big a star as Joan was becoming, she, she didn't have enough clout to actually get Anne roles. So Anne, um, even though she was under contract to MGM and she had initially been working under her mom's name, Anna Lair, 
but eventually landed on Anne Dvorak, which is that's a total stage name. Um, it is not pronounced, you know, maybe she wanted it pronounced Dvorak at one time, but very quickly Dvorak became the common pronunciation. So she was always Anne Dvorak. So somebody found some obscure quote that they put on Wikipedia 20 years ago. And so everybody always has to say it's pronounced Dvorak. Nobody called her Anne Dvorak. She was always Anne Dvorak. So I'm not going to go to I'm not going like, to go to battle on Wikipedia, but I want to say here, <laughs> everybody always called her Anne Dvorak. Um, she couldn't get, MGM just wouldn't cast her in anything. Um, in addition to Joan Crawford, though, she'd become friends with Karen Morley. And Karen Morley, um, you know, was getting pretty good roles at MGM. But uh, Morley ended up getting cast in the 1931 production of Scarface that was produced by Howard Hughes, directed by Howard Hawks. And there were two lead roles, lead female roles in that. Morley was given the choice of either one, either the, the mole or the kid sister. Kid sister is a much better role. But Morley said, you know what? Anne would be great for that. And so one night, Howard Hawks had a party. He would do that. He would get his cast together. So they still hadn't cast the role of Cheska. And uh, Karen Morley called up Anne, said, get dressed, get over here. She did. And then uh, George Raft was there, who was the love interest of the kid sister part. She went to George Raft and did this dance with him on the dance floor and Howard caught Howard Hawks's eye. She auditioned for the role and got it. And so her her first acting role is Scarface, which is a step. You know, if you think three on a match is a step, you watch her in Scarface. And it's incredible that that's the first, you know, and she had just turned 20 when she was cast. Um She's incredible in that film. And it's her first time, you know, even though she'd been on, on camera, so she was comfortable in front of the camera and had done all these MGM films. This is her first time acting and it's opposite Paul Muni. And on the strength of her um, performance, she got second billing underneath Paul Muni in that movie. Um, she gets signed to the contract. You know, she gets signed to the, the typical contract that you get signed to. But the next film Howard Hawks makes is The Crowd Roars with James Cagney and Joan Blondell over at Warner Brothers. And Hawks borrows her, brings her to Warner Brothers for The Crowd Roars. And Warner Brothers says, wow, and becomes completely enamored with her. They enter into an exclusive deal with Howard Hughes to borrow Anne, where Howard Hughes had script approval. So every movie they were going to put Anne in, and Warner Brothers churned out movies. So every movie that um, Anne was going to be put in, they would send the script to Howard Hughes for approval, which is crazy that they did because Warner Brothers lawyers were like, don't do that. So she makes a few movies at Warner Brothers in early 1932. Warner Brothers says, you know what? Screw it. Let's just own her. Buys her contract from Howard Hughes for $40,000, which was $10,000 more than MGM paid for Gene Harlow's contract from Howard Hughes. So once upon a time, Anne was a hotter commodity. And so, so Anne is really positioned, you know, her reviews are great. The press calls her Hollywood's new Cinderella. Like she is positioned to just become kind of a stratospheric star. But she made a movie at Warner's called The Strange Love of Molly Louvain and fell madly in love with her co-star, Leslie Benton. Um, they got married you know, within weeks of meeting. And Leslie Fenton was, um, he, he never signed contracts with studios. He always freelanced because he wanted the freedom to leave. He loved to travel and just viewed Hollywood as a way to fund his travels. And so um, after Anne, uh, you know, after she's, Warner Brothers has spent the money on her. She makes three on a match. And Leslie Fenton uh, convinces her to walk out on her contract so that they can go on an extended European honeymoon. 
Um, granted, she was, I think she was burned out and exhausted and overwhelmed. Like she's, you know, 20 years old and her face is on billboards and and she's gotten married and, you know, all of this is going on. So that I think the pressure was getting to her. But um, yeah, but she walks out of her contract, bad mouths, you know, Warner Brothers to the press saying that producers are slave drivers and goes on this amazing honeymoon. So like they're gone for like eight months and they go, you know, they go to Italy and Germany and England and they go down to Africa and it's, it's incredible and it's, it's transformative, but she walked out on her contract on Warner Brothers. So even though um, they had, you know, they, they had invested the money in her. So once she comes back, they let her stew for a few months, but then they put her to work. So Anne does end up making a ton of movies at Warner Brothers None of them, you know, they're they're all kind of leading lady roles. They are not, they are no longer positioning her to be a star. So, and I don't know if Warner Brothers ever really positioned anybody to be a star. They just kind of threw them in things, but you know, they kind of give her just mediocre roles, um, work, work her to death. And then um she ultimately takes them to court to try to get out of her contract. You know, Betty Davis and James Cagney, both at Warner Brothers, they both took Warner Brothers to court to try to kind of battle and they're both very well known for doing that and actually did it before both of them. So she filed her lawsuit against Warner brothers a couple months before James Cagney. Um, and, you know, for saying that she had been unlawfully suspended at one point. So, so she does, I think kind of lay the groundwork and she's one of the earlier ones to do that. And it's not successful. Um, they eventually, you know, will release her from her contract and she will just freelance for the rest of her career. So she gets out of contract at Warner Brothers at 36, and then she'll just end up freelancing. And just kind of every time her career might have a little bit of momentum, she just kind of does something to stop. So, you know, Leslie Fett and her husband, he's a British citizen. He ends up going to England once the war breaks out. She can't stand to be away from him. So she actually gets passage on a freighter ship in December of 1940 travels you know through hostile waters uh goes to england during the blitz to be near him she will drive an ambulance she will be a bbc broadcaster she will write articles she will do kind of proto uso tours she's a member of the women's land army does all of this in england during the war wait can we go back to the ambulance thing she drove an ambulance she did like legitimately like the queen like queen elizabeth did so yeah she she was part of the, the mechanized transport corps so she learned how to drive an ambulance as well as repair it wow and so she so during like during the blitz so like you know she is in london yeah she was a, she was absolutely amazing um you know comes back certainly suffers from ptsd the marriage falls apart so all of that that they went through together and and she'll just end up being, you know, she she marries a couple more times and ultimately re- retires to Hawaii. Um, her third husband was kind of a monster and spent most of her money. And so she'll die. Not So there was an awful, so she dies in 1979 in Hawaii. And the National Enquirer did write a terrible, terrible article about her um, being like in poverty. And she had just a bare light bulb. And that was all kind of an overstatement. Um, but she certainly was living on a fixed income and, you know, died in relative obscurity um that's Anne in a nutshell I had no idea she sounds a lot like her character in this film like she could have things laid out for her it could be easy but she's like no I need this excitement I need this passion and I'm going to be reckless about it like I have guts I'm gonna go for it but I'm gonna be reckless um wow that okay the other thing I didn't know about the Joan Crawford thing at all 
Um, mm. And now that you say it, I can totally see some of Joan Crawford in her, but I feel like Anne Dvorak is inherently more likable than Joan is. You know, and I hate using that word. I hate calling women likable versus not. But what I'm essentially saying is that in this film, we're on Anne's side, even though she is portrayed in a specific way. Like she is sexualized. She is a drug addict in this. And we're still rooting for her. And I don't know if in that period of time we would have been like meant to, but you just can't help it. There is something about her that you root for. So um, I'm specifically thinking of a scene her performance in this is stunning. There's um, we see her when she's well off and she's very good with her words to her husband. Like, even though what she's doing is taking herself out of this marriage, I think, especially as a modern viewer, I can go, yeah, I can see how your life would be really boring and you'd want to experience something else. Like I am, I'm, I am on your side. I understand. So when she does have an affair with Lyle Talbot, you get it. Um, but, or I guess I should say Michael Loftus, that's the character name, but Lyle Talbot, again, way more fun to say. And that's the actor who plays this person. Um, he did not actually do these things in real life people at home. Okay. So you get why she'd go off with him. Um, but there's this scene after she's been away for a while where we see kind of how far she's fallen and she's asking Joan Blondell's character who has married her ex-husband, she's asking her for money. And that exchange between them is a really beautiful exchange and it's so well acted. Like from a modern perspective, we are watching someone who has a drug addiction, but who's not like acting drug addiction. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like she's yeah. subtle with her choices in 1932, but you understand everything that's going on. And I don't know, I just, that moment struck me. It was such a beautiful moment of performance. And I remember you saying at your party that she didn't think she was that great of an actress, but in this film, especially with moments like that, she handles them so deftly. What did she think of her own performances? At, at this time, she didn't think she had enough life experience to be a good actress. Mm. So, no, I don't know if she ever thought, you know, much of her performances, but you're right. And and she's she's so contemporary, you know, and this is the yes. time period. You know, th this is, you know, pretty early on in sound films. Um, and so there were still people that were, you know, I think having difficulty transitioning and they were, they still had, you know, they had their mid-Atlantic accents and they were, you know, had big gestures and, you know, because Anne had never been inside, other than as a kid, hadn't been in silent films, she's just incredibly natural. And she's in, and I feel like you could pluck her out of 1932 and stick her in kind of any era and she would play okay. Like she, she could yeah. absolutely do it. Um, no, and that, I love that scene that you mentioned. She doesn't have makeup on and, yeah. you know, and, and Anne, and she's biting her nails, which is something she actually did in real life. Um, oh, that's so, a good detail. I didn't know. Yeah. And her eyes are all haunted. Like yeah. she, you said she doesn't have life experience. I'm like, no, but I see like yeah. the ache and the withdrawal and all of this going through your eyes right now. Oh, uh, and then the final scene that she handles so beautifully, yeah. like I'm assuming that Anne was never a full on drug addict who went through withdrawal symptoms, but like the end yeah. of this film with the lipstick. Yeah, it's stunning. <laughs> it's stunning. It is stunning. It's stunning and it's disorienting. And it's something that could have easily been overplayed and laughable. Yeah. 
And she completely, yeah, she completely pulled it off. And, you know, and I have a letter that she, she wrote to a fan at that time where she says like, I, you know, I, I, I try to not disappoint you all with my performances, but I just haven't been in a lot of movies and I don't have the experience and, you know, and I'm making this movie three on a match. She, she like, this was a performance. Um, I never, other than that letter to that fan, she never like references three on a match. She never talks about it. And, you know, and this is a movie, it's 63 minutes. Like it is a quickie Warner Brothers programmer. So this is one of like dozens of these types of films that they would have made. So at the time it would have just come and gone. And I think, you know, for, for those of us that came after the fact and, you know, the production code, you know, really starts getting enforced in, in 1934. So the production code is being enforced from 34 until the late 60s when the rating system comes. And even though I think filmmakers could be really clever with, you know, sliding things in. So I think I think a lot of filmmakers did a lot with being that hamstrung by the production code office. We're used to it being so, you know, we're used to the films being so sanitized, um, which is why I think this film just shines now because it's just so what we're not expecting. Um, and I think like of, of all the pre-codes, like it is, it's, it's like one of the most pre-cody of the, yeah, it's right. It's right up there. It's with like, like with baby face. Baby face, baby face, redheaded woman. And this film, I feel like are like the three most pre-cody films um, that you can find. You said this at your birthday party, like it's sex and drugs, like it's there and you're aware of it. And it's 1932 completely we haven't changed much <laughs> um there is something like i do want to actually talk a little bit about the film i want to continue to talk about Antwerp, obviously because i have an expert here and i need to admit i've only seen two of her films i've only seen scarface and this one and now i'm so curious about what to view next so obviously you're gonna to have to tell us this in the double feature portion of the show but just mm -hmm. like regarding this film um like a couple things maybe we can talk about really quick are Joan Blondell in this. She's also absolutely fabulous in this. It's shocking that Betty Davis is totally like, she's there, but she's not. I don't know if Betty Davis ever had so little to do in a movie. She Nothing she basically exists for the movie for the movie to be called Three on a Match. So I don't know if just somebody was so <laughs> married to that title because she she has nothing to do. Um Mervyn Leroy, who's the director, I think it's in his memoir, he talks about how once the film came out, he he said to like um, somebody that, yeah, he thought Anne Dvorak had maybe potential, but Blondell was the one who was going to go somewhere and like didn't really blew off Betty Davis. And he said, she's been cool to me ever since. Betty has a scene where she's like in a slip and puts up, puts on lingerie. And that's like what the, the purpose Betty serves in this movie. It's, it's, yeah. it's incredible how she just has nothing to do. But Blondell's great. Like Blondell, you know, Blondell is, Blondell is Blondell. Like she is, you know, she, every, every, anytime she's on screen, she's an absolute joy. I love her costumes in this film. I think Blondell's oh, costumes yeah. are incredible. Um, so she's a lot of fun, but yeah, but Anne, Anne has the role. It is Vivian Revere is such a great role. Well, and it's because I feel like maybe Joan Blondell's role, she figures out her situation early, right? Like her whole arc happens when it's not even on screen because she's the wild child. And then when they cut to further in the future, also, I do want to mention they do a very, it's very of the time framing device of like, 
newspaper clippings telling us what year it is and giving us headlines from that year and maybe fashion that was popular that year. So we, the viewer can like, ah, remember 10 years ago when we did this and when this happened. So it's like a way of having nostalgia and putting us in that moment and showing them throughout the years. So Joan Blondell's character gets into trouble. Like we see her in the beginning going off to smoke with some boys. And the next time we see her, she's in reform school. After a great joke about like, what do you think is going to happen to Mary? I bet you she ends up in reform school. Cut to she's in reform school. Um, So she already had her reckoning. She was like, oh, we don't even know what it was. Whatever it was, she did something wrong. She ended up in reform school and she's like, never again. I don't like it here. And she becomes a star. She becomes an actress. So she does get involved with Lyle Talbot's character and does bring that character to Anne Dvorak and cause that problem in her life but it's almost like all of her problems were solved off screen and she realized that before the movie even began her arc doesn't happen on screen betty davis never has an arc because the smart people remain smart throughout and and dvorak's character is the only person that's actually given an arc on screen so that's also why she gets to steal the picture i think and i also just i thought it was funny i was thinking about this after that we're viewing all of this nostalgia about all of these trends and all these things that have happened and then we're seeing in real time trends happening again like when um joan blondell is getting her hair done and it's like that crazy contraption that connects to your head that looks like an octopus slash bride of frankenstein and that's how she reconnects with Anne Dvorak. i love that in that moment we're we're seeing like a time a time capsule and it's what this movie's doing for the past we're seeing right now i liked that but you also probably all of that framing device you could cut out and not lose anything and then the movie would Correct. be like for 40 minutes long it would still probably be okay we as viewers can make the inference that time has passed just yes. if they use their names yeah <laughs> oh and shout out to child star Anne shirley who plays a young vivian in this a very snooty young vivian very snooty yeah when she was still being credited as dawn o'day yes oh yes and then this is another side note, but the kid in this, they picked a good kid. That kid is so darn cute. His name is Buster Phelps. He plays Junior. Is he supposed to be five or six by the end? Yes. And is he still three? Also, yes. What a cute child actor, though. And you are so on his side and he is precious. May I just say that was just an observation. Yeah, I, you know, I have to say, because I started watching this movie when I was in my 20s and I thought, I personally thought he was incredibly like too precocious. And then once I watched, like the first time I watched this film after I became a mom, it, it was, it's a completely different experience, like completely. And I was, you know, the first time I saw it, I was blown away because the performance was so great. And then after I saw it, once I became a mom, I was just like a wreck. I was just like a sobbing wreck by the end. So it, it you know, it's so interesting to watch these movies at different points in your life because the perspective is going to be, you know, so much different. So I've certainly, um, yeah, I've certainly softened on Buster Phelps because I wasn't a big fan of his, but I've certainly softened on him over the years. He's real cute. Like, I get it because child actors from the past are child actors from the past. There's not a lot of, let's say, realism happening there. But um, they they got me. I was like, oh, I'm in. I get why you <laughs> would risk everything for this small, small child. Um, yeah. And that I, I actually was thinking about that now. I know there's the film Night Nurse that is going to be at my double features. But that is a character where it's like a mother who's an alcoholic who is a terrible mother and is mistreating her kid. And so it's interesting that in this, they make the distinction of like, yes, Andwork's character is suffering from drug addiction, but she's still a really good mom and she still wants her kid to be okay. Like she's still a mom. Still a mom. It's really tender and really lovely. Uh, 
And this is just my like sassy observation of where did that class clown go? And why was he not written back in full circle when they're kids? They have that adorable class clown. And I was like, oh, he's going to be there when they're adults. No, he had more to do than Betty Davis did. And I was like, kid, where are you? I want you back. Yeah, he's given a lot of lines early on to like never be heard from again. In my brain, I wrote a theory of like, I bet you Mervyn Leroy sees himself as that character. And is like, I will have him be showcased as a child and I am the director. And that is me. Like, I think he did that now. I'll go. Yeah, I'll go for that. All right. And we people at home, we've been mentioning Mervyn Leroy a lot. He directed this. We talk about him a lot in our The Bad Seed episode. Um, he's very cool. I I got to listen to a special interview that he did for AFI back when I was their intern. And he It was in 1974, so it was like way into his career. He was in his 70s, um, and he was so passionate about what he did and was so all about storytelling and the experience of the performers and the people on set. Like, to him, everyone on the set was valuable. And, I mean, this is the guy who he produced The Wizard of Oz, and he's the reason that Somewhere Over the Rainbow stayed in the picture because he understood it was the film's heart. This is that guy. This is also the guy that I think I said all of these in the other podcast. I'm sorry if I did people at home. Um, But he's also the guy that gave Clark Gable his first screen test and didn't put him in the film because his ears were too big. And that was Little Caesar. Um, But anyway, Mervyn Leroy is like a legend who kind of has like a really authentic, I would say even spiritual way of looking at movie making and was kind of lauded as not being an artistic filmmaker but an entertaining filmmaker. And he leaned into that and really appreciated that. And he was all about just like telling the story in its most simple form, the best way that he could. So that's like Mervyn Leroy in a very small nutshell. Yeah. Well, and, and he got, you know, he got an incredible performance out of her, you know, and I think Anne had, Anne had a lot of natural raw talent clearly, yeah. but like the, her performances that just really stand out was when she works with these really great directors. So when she works with Howard Hawks and Scarface, when she works with Mervyn Leroy and this, when she works with, you know, towards the end of her career, she did a movie at MGM with Lana Turner called A Life of Her Own that was directed by George Cukor. And she's, she has maybe 10 minutes of screen time, if even that much. And just, she just walks off with that movie. So, you know, so she, I think Anne's always very good in everything she does but when she worked with these these like directors my god like she's just incredible well and again i can see mervyn Leroy is kind of like an egoless director so i imagine that's how he can let these people shine it's like he takes his ego out of the equation and they run away with it i have to ask so before like we start to wrap things up i need to know more about Anne. this is kind of a tricky question i guess but like what do you think her career could have been like? Like if she had stayed with Warner Brothers and hadn't kind of been self-sabotaging in other ways, one, do you think she would have been satisfied by that? And two, what would her career have looked like? Would she have been like a Betty Davis? Like what what would that have looked like for her, do you think? You can never predict. Um, you know, in the book, like I, I do tend to compare her to Betty Davis quite a bit, not not because they were the same, but I do think you know, they, they both had very different styles of acting but I think they were suited for the same types of roles. So I think they would have been, you know, so I I can see Anne in like Dark Victory. Oh yeah, and Jezebel? Yeah, and Jezebel. I can see Anne in like Petrified Forest. I think it'd be a very different, you know, I I could absolutely see Anne in All This in Heaven too. I think it'd be a very different performance and a very different film with her. Um, I think possibly, I don't know that she would have ever had Betty Davis's career only because Betty was so singularly 
focused mm. on having the career that she had. You know, Betty would, you know, Betty could have never been swayed, you know, yeah. she, she would never, no man could have pulled Betty Davis away from that career trajectory. Um, so would Anne have been like that legendary? I don't know, but I think she definitely, you know, could have pulled off roles like that. I, I think she probably would have ended up with some of those roles that Betty really shined in. Um, but Anne was, I don't know that she was ever that motivated. So like as much as she wanted, when she was at MGM, she really wanted those speaking parts and she was very passionate and worked really hard. But the second she falls in love and gets married and she's like 20 when she gets married, which I think like 1920 is like the worst age to fall in love because you just will go run off and do whatever. Your brain isn't even fully developed yet. Your brain's not fully developed. Kind of terrible age to fall in love. It's like, thank God the guy I fell in love with when I was like 20, like just didn't, didn't go there with me. And and, and I thank him for it now. I mean, he still sucked, but I thank him for it now. <laughs> Um, you know, and Leslie Benton was 10 years older than Anne and had so much influence over her. Um, so again, I, I, don't, I don't know that she could have had that career the way Betty did because Betty was just so singular. You know, and Betty and Betty fought Warner Brothers, but she fought them yeah. smart. She waited until she had an Oscar. Well, and it doesn't work till de Havilland too. Like Olivia de Havilland's yeah. the one that finally gets it through. And she's like the sweet one, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but even when Anne's, you know, even when she's older and her brain has developed, you know, she, she starts, you know, her career starts to go on a little bit of an uptick. Um, around 1939 1940 she's in some columbia films that's when she takes off and goes to england yeah. you know to be you know she comes back gets divorced and i have you know i have her you know quotes from her saying and now i'm gonna focus on my career and then she gets married again and then just kind of half-asses her career so um you know i think she had the, the talent to be a bigger star but you know if it wasn't Leslie Fenton I don't know maybe it would have been someone else so I think she she was never singularly focused on anything I think you know I've heard that she was definitely even though she wasn't formally educated she was a very intellectual person she was a very curious person she loved to travel and so I think she was always pulling herself in a lot of different directions um that I don't know if she she would have ever focused on but I think she absolutely had the potential to you know have, have done like Betty Davis type roles so in the book she I mean it's titled Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel what do you think made her such a rebel um I really tie that to the Warner Brothers court case like I really think that and that's the thing I I really hope people will acknowledge her for because that took a lot of guts to do that mm -hmm. it took a lot of guts to 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 face off against warner brothers so you know i think i think her kind of bucking the studio system you know and again it was totally to her detriment always <laughs> um but yeah but i think that she you know that that she did walk out on her contract to go honeymooning and to find love and she did battle the studios and she did you know go into go sailing into Europe during World War II. Um, I just think it's all of those different elements that kind of made me, you know, classify her, you know, as as a she's not a rebel like in the traditional sense. She's not a rebel in the, you know, cigarettes in your sleeve sense. Um, <laughs> but I think kind of the way she she treated her career for better or for worse. She did what she wanted to do. She did. And that made her a rebel. Got it. Yeah. You know, and to hell with the consequences. You know, and later on, I mean, I ended up acquiring a journal that she kept at the end of her life. And there's one entry from about two years before she died. And she says, I never focused, you know, I, I never focused on being an actress like I should have. And I threw my life and career out the window, which is so sad, but I don't know that she would have 
ever done it any differently than the way she did it. She always followed her heart. And even if she had focused, I'm sure she would have regretted everything else. Like, I wish I had lived and done this and I wish I hadn't been focused. So you, there's always two sides of the coin. You can never know. Yeah. So there's a lot of Vivian Revere in her, that kind of longing for, you know, whatever, whatever else is, is on, you know, the grass is always greener. This is a Vivian question, her character. What drugs do you think that she's doing in 1932? Like, what is her addiction to? What is, what does Michael Loftus get her on? I mean, she's, she's having the withdrawals. So I always thought it was heroin and I, but she's clearly snorting something. It's like, what is it? What is the drug here that you're doing? But I'm one. Yeah. I don't know if she was snorting heroin. I don't know. I always thought it was heroin, but maybe okay. she snorted heroin. That That's just my guess. Cause she like, she just, it's, it's like these kind of brutal scenes where she's going through withdrawals um, and she's just moaning and, you know, and she looks ill. She looks ill. Yeah. I always thought it was heroin. Oh, and as a side note, when they trick the little boy, you can't even be mad at the little boy. When I was watching it, I was like, oh, no, stranger danger, except it's not a stranger. The, you know, because he thinks that Michael Loftus is like his uncle and Michael Loftus is like, your mom is sick. And then he sees her and she does look sick. No, It's the one weird instance of like, oh, man, the kidnapping without the stranger danger. Oh, God, what could this kid have done? Nothing. It's brutal. It's a brutal. brutal. It is a brutal, heartbreaking film. One thing I wanted to ask about Hand to Work, too is what was something you were surprised to learn about her in your research? Like what was just something you didn't expect? I don't know that I was surprised to learn about, but I think what surprised me kind of about myself when researching, because, you know, my my question when I first saw Three on a Match and then I saw Scarface not too long after was, you know, why don't I know who this person is? Like, why didn't mm-hmm. she have a bigger career? And so as I started to put the pieces together, it was, oh, because she got married and she walked, you know, and, and that she married this man who had a huge amount of influence. And he did have, he had a huge amount of influence on her. And, you know, and she strikes me when she's a teenager and she's at MGM, because she's, she's at MGM and she's like 17, 18 years old. And she just strikes me as like really sweet and really goofy, like a sweet, goofy kid who's just exuberant and just loves to go out dancing and loves to go to the beach. And, and then she marries him and he's not that. So he's just somebody who doesn't really like to go out a whole lot. And he seems like a pretty sullen person. And so she kind of becomes that, you know, so they end up building this um, house on a walnut ranch in Encino. And they're kind of considered like a reclusive couple. Um, they do. I mean, they, they go to the boxing matches like once a week and they go to the Brown Derby in Hollywood. So I think by Hollywood standards, they're considered kind of reclusive. Yeah. Um And so I do feel like a lot of that exuberance that she had just ended up um, really being tampered down by him. And so I always had a really negative opinion of him. I always kind of hated Leslie Fenton. And once I actually started writing the book and I started writing about their courtship and their elopement, and when I was writing it, so, you know, I, you know, I, I got married, I had a kid, I had my daughter. And then um, when she was less than a year old, I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And I had to have my thyroid removed. And then I had to do this. Um, it's fine. It's all fine. I'm, I'm fine. I had to do this radiation treatment. And it's this iodine radiation where you actually like consume, a, a, like a, you consume like iodine radiation. And it's crazy because you get like stuck in a room and they give you this pill and this pill's like in a container that looks like a miniature, like plutonium container from like Back to the Future. And you take this pill and nobody, you, nobody can be near you. And so I had to go just take the pill. I had to do it alone. So I couldn't have my, my husband or my daughter near me. 
And I drove to my mom's because my mom had um, a room I could stay in. I had to be quarantined for a week. I had to just live in my mom's spare bedroom for a week. And I just brought all my Andorac research. I'm like, okay, well, I can just like work on the book while I'm there. And so that was what I was working on. I was working on Anne when she eloped with Leslie Fenton. And just kind of being in this room and being away from the people I loved the most. Um, and writing about just this great, and it was a great romance. I mean, I, I do think he was the love of her life, um, really softened my, the way I felt about him. So, you know, maybe I don't agree with how he handled her career, but she did truly love him, you know, and yeah. that honeymoon, that honeymoon, I think was probably the most amazing period of her life, you know, and, and Anne wasn't sentimental, um, and she certainly wasn't, she didn't like to look back. And I think she had a lot of regrets. Again, I don't think she would have ever done it differently, but she did have a lot of regrets. And so there, there was one gentleman who I got to know and he lived in Hawaii and, and he, and he, you know, he's this, this, this wonderful little imp of a man and he, he became friends with Anne. And so he would go hang out with her and he said, you know, she, she never talked about her film career, but she would occasionally talk about this honeymoon about when she was going through Europe. And so eventually, you know, I was able to actually acquire her scrapbook of photos from this honeymoon. And she, and she actually, and she had these in the apartment. Like at one point I found the, this antique dealer who got the contents of her storage unit. And so there were photos from her career in the storage unit, but the honeymoon photos that had been in her apartment. And so it was still something that was very, you know, special. So that, you know, as I'm writing the book and, you know, once I get to the part where the, the, the marriage falls apart after the war, um, I was really sad. Like I was really, really heartbroken for her that this marriage that she really had, you know, sacrificed her career for and literally put her life on the line to be near him in England, um, that that it all fell apart. And so I think that was something that just ultimately surprised me about myself, that I would end up having, you know, so much sympathy for, for Leslie Fenton um, that I actually ended up kind of liking him. Um, you know, and I, I have a friend of mine who's, um, who's a huge Anne fan. And so we'd always, you know, kind of bitch about Leslie Fenton. And after the book came out, she said, God, you were really fair to him. Um, and I'm like, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Cause you know, I, I you know, who, who knows what, what would have been had she not married him, but um, it, it really was a grand adventure. Did she ever say or state like what her favorite film role was? Did she ever specify that? I think it was Scarface. Arguably, it, it's her best movie, even though it's the first one. Um, you know, but I think for her, I mean, it was probably pretty hard to just you start off at the top. Yeah. <laughs> and then the roles <laughs> just kind of, you know. Um, but yeah, but I did think she, she always regarded, I think she always regarded Scarface as one of her finest performances. So I think that was her favorite. I mean, I like this, but also I just thought this was so so much fun and so wonderful. I was just so taken by this film and I haven't seen Scarface since I was a teenager. So that's probably another part of it. I should rewatch, obviously. You should rewatch it. Yes. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or like like a story of hers that you're like, I got to tell people this. People need to know this about Anne Dvorak. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to tell us about? She always wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so she did have a little bit of an opportunity during the war. So she was a war correspondent and some of her articles, you know, did survive, which is really great. She talked about, um, you know, crossing on the, the freighter ship with the other passengers. Like she wrote an incredible article. So to have that firsthand experience of what it, of what it was like 
to be traveling across the waters to Lisbon. And so it, it was great that that she was able to, to, to write some of her experiences in real time. But later on in her life, yes. in, in Hawaii, she ended up writing a multi-volume abridged history of the world, which she called Historical Digest. And she did record herself reading it. So I think certainly there had been um, like fiction books that had been read. So there's like children's books. I know there's like Vivian Lee reading, you know, I think like Peter Rabbit stories or something. So I think there, there had been children's books, but I don't know if there had been like an extended nonfiction work read. So I think it's an early audio book. Um, and I, I've never heard the record. I've never seen it. Um, but I, I did ultimately, um, I ended up befriending a man, Arnie Scheibel, and he was a professor of neurology at UCLA. And in 1959, he became the fourth owner of Anne's ranch that her and Leslie Fenton had built. And so um, by that time, it was no longer a 50 acre walnut ranch. It was down to like two acres. And so I befriended him. Um, and so, you know, got to go to Anne's house many times and actually ended up having my wedding there. So I got married at Anne's house. Um, but Arnie, he in the late 60s met Anne. So he actually, you know, he, he had reached out to her. Hey, I bought your house. And because, you know, and Anne wasn't one to necessarily want to interact with people, um, you know, kind of once her career was over. Uh, but because he was in academia, and I think that was something she was always very insecure about, that she never, um, that she didn't have a formal education, you know, didn't go to college. I have a who's who in Hawaii where she says she went to Occidental College and they had no record of her. So she really latched on to him. She just loved that this that this professor. And so they, they corresponded quite a bit. And so he um, he thinks he heard, you know, he couldn't remember if he just saw part of the manuscript for Historical Digest or if he actually listened to the recordings. But, you know, she she asked him to kind of help her distribute it to universities just to get feedback and nobody understood it. And I think it was just too ahead of its time that she, she thought it would be great to have historical digest marketed to universities as a teaching aid. And it just never took off. And she puts, I, I have a piece of letterhead, so she had historical digest letterhead made. Um, and there were some articles like in Hawaiian newspapers about this grand project that she was making, you know, that she was doing. And so unfortunately it just never went anywhere. It is a good idea. What what events did she put in it that pop out at you? What what did she believe were the top events in Historical Digest? I, I never got to see. I I never I've never seen it. Man. So yeah. So the um, I just picture like mess, History of the World Part One. Like Mel Brooks does it in comedy, but like she had figured Anne it out. Is very earnest. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. figured it out. I think it was. Um. I want to say it was an eighteen volume abridged history of the world. Oh my god. And I and I'm just dying to one day I, I'm hoping it'll I'm hoping it'll turn up so the, the antique dealer who got her storage unit he said most everything he had was um destroyed in a hurricane in Kauai years ago so I did you know and he said there were lots of records and I'm like but was, is that was that how she was recording historical digest was on record I don't know so I yeah. hope it's still out there listeners if you find them and you want to contact us about them please feel free to do that on our Instagram 
So maybe somewhere in Hawaii, there's yeah historical digest is floating around. So that is one of my absolute favorite things about Anne is that she wrote an 18 volume abridged history of the world. I love that about her also. And I didn't yeah. know what till now. Um, <laughs> I thought of another question because I can't help myself. In this film, there are a lot of wonderful people here. Did she make any like lasting friendships with anyone in this film? Um, have a lot of lasting friendships period again and like the you know the people that she worked with in this film she um this is when she had you know she was so wrapped up with leslie fenton but i think but she she got along with them all you know she'd end up she would do one more film with betty davis so she would do housewife a couple of years later um sadly this was the last film she made with joan blundell um she made at least one more with glenda farrell not glenda farrell's in it for like a hot second and the reform school. Um, she would do a couple more. She did a few more with Lyle Talbot. So I think um, I think she was pretty friendly with Lyle Talbot. And Lyle Talbot's daughter actually connected with me a few years ago. Because oh. um, I think because I think he did talk warmly of her. And she actually gave me a photo of the, of the two of them on the set of College Coach. Um, so she did work with Lyle Talbot quite a bit. Bogey, she never worked with again. Uh, Warren William, she, gosh, she would end up working with Warren William like over a decade later um, in the private affairs of Bellamy. So, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I was, when I was researching, you know, and most of the people she made these movies with are, are long gone. And even when I was doing this research 20 years ago, um, so I, you know, I would contact these actors that, you know, it's like, tell me about this movie you made that is super insignificant. And you had like 30 seconds of screen time with Anne. So I never got much out of them, but if anybody did have any, they, they always said, she was um she was on time and very professional and i feel like that those might be the highest compliment you can get from an actor yeah <laughs> that, like she she knew her lines and she was on time yeah it could have so easily not been that yeah so i think that um yeah so she so she always seemed to be on time and very professional and i think um i think she 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 was well liked but yeah i don't know that she had a whole i know for i know he, her and leslie Fenton hung out with fred mcmurray um and his first wife quite a bit. And the Academy, the Motion Picture Academy actually has some home movie footage. It's from the Fred McMurray collection of Anne and Leslie Betton on that Encino property. Oh my God, which I is, love that. Which is really great. Um, the other interesting thing about Anne, besides Historical Digest, she had an incredible green thumb. Uh, that's one of the reasons she moved to Hawaii is that she just loved, you know, she, she loved plant life. And so her Encino ranch does have a greenhouse Um. And there's great photos of her, you know, with the, the greenhouse just absolutely packed full, um, packed full of plants and flowers. So she she loved, yeah, she she loved the outdoors. I have loved learning about Anne Dvorak. I mean, I'm a fan from this movie and it was so cool to learn about her. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. Yeah, thank you for letting me rattle on for a very long time. I was very interested. This was wonderful. Thank you. If you want to find out more, there is a book, Anne Dvorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, uh, published by University Press of Kentucky. So- uh, we are going to move into the modern lens portion of this <laughs> podcast. What holds up? What doesn't hold up? Um, what's funny is what I actually think doesn't hold up is the way that they marketed it. I don't love that the movie poster is like a giant man's head. So it's Warren Williams head. He's like the focal feature. And then it's the three women smaller on the match. Um, oh, also, this is just a beef with the movie that I had forgotten till right now. I get frustrated that Joan Blondell is kind of the agent of chaos because she lights all the matches. And then after all three are lit, she's like, oh, that's bad luck, don't you know? And I'm like, you should have said that before and given her the choice. <laughs> <But> whatever. <laughs> okay. Okay, Joan Blondell. 
anyway, so, but yeah, I don't love the marketing, how it's like, basically like, it's this man's show and there's three women and it makes it look like he's going to pick between the three women when it's not about, he's, we don't even care about him. I mean, we do, we want his kid to be okay, but like, he's not the story. It should be all of the big, their three faces big or their two faces in just a little Betty Davis. Putting on lingerie. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I wear lingerie and I'm also the valedictorian yeah. and I got a degree. Yeah. Well, I guess I didn't get a degree. I went to business school, whatever. It's fine. I can type fast. Yeah, <laughs> I can type fast and I can also be a governess. Those are transferable skills. Um, so, yeah, that's I didn't love that. And also, I mean, people at home, just so you know, obviously, this is 1932. There's not like going to be any sort of people of color in this film or any sort of like depiction of not like they're all cis, straight, hetero, white people. Um, so like modern lens viewing, like oh, that's going to be there, but this film is surprisingly relevant. I mean, the views on sex, the fact that that husband's kind of like, yeah, go do what you got to do, go off and live your life. I'm cool with that. I don't know. I think that's pretty progressive for the time. Um, the depiction of like addiction and drug use um, and not necessarily judging that, but like her having withdrawal and still being a good person, despite the fact that she's dealing with this. Um, and by good person, I mean, like wanting her son not to be murdered by her boyfriend. I think I left that out of the plot thing. Her boyfriend is going to kill her son. That's so messed up. He's a really bad boyfriend. Um, in his defense, he is very handsome and charming. I get why the initial attraction, but I don't get the rest of it. Okay. Um, so yeah, more modern lens stuff. I think it does have like stereotypes of women that would have been in stories of the day. Yeah. Well, any other modern lens things that you were noticing that you were like, oh, Yes. No. Yeah. I mean, um, so no, so there isn't a lot of like depictions of diversity, but at least there's no like blackface numbers. Thank so, goodness. You know, yeah. <laughs> yep. There's it's like true. nothing, you know, there's, there's no maids. <sighs> there's, there's no maids. There's like, at least yep. there's like none of, there's none of that. Yeah. Um. So that, yeah, I, I do think it, it holds up really well. And, you know, and it's probably, and you could probably remake it today. You'd have to do some adjusting. And you'd have to get that phrase so people would know it. So it would make sense to them. Otherwise they're yeah. like, yeah, three people on a match. Sounds fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But the movie did, it, it was remade um, later as Broadway Musketeers. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. With Anne Sheridan. I haven't actually seen it. I never saw it because I knew it was a remake of this. And I'm like, eh, I'm just going to watch it and just sit there thinking I wish I was watching three on a match. So I've never actually seen it. That's how I feel about. Oh, God, I'm still going to say. Yep. That's how I feel about the 1992 film Newsies and the Broadway musical version of it. I can't watch the Broadway musical because why would you when the 1992 version of exists? Why would you do that to yourself? Exactly. Another modern lens thing that you had mentioned earlier that does hold up is Anne's very contemporary performance. She bases her performance in reality and therefore it is timeless. Um, so yeah, she's not campy. It's not shoe and scenery. It's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. She never it's did. Really, oh, and not a lot of options for women. That's um another thing you take away from this is kind of like, they each kind of show what women could do as a career and that's yeah. it. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Secretary, showgirl, you know, rich wife. Man. All right, everyone, we're going to move on to the double feature portion of this show. If you liked this movie, check out these other movies. Christina's going to hit us with the Andvorak ones. The ones that I personally was feeling, I feel like um, Babyface and Night Nurse were the two that like popped out at me immediately because they are also both pre-code films, very mm -hmm. sexy. Joan Blondell is in Night Nurse and that, 
has it's Barbara Stanwyck and she often has to go out on nurse cases where there's crime and violence and sex <laughs> and drinking. Um, so that kind of vibe. And then a baby face, she's literally sleeping her way to the top of the, like she's social climbing by sleeping with people. Um, I also thought of the divorcee, uh, the Norma mm-hmm. Shearer film, uh, Manhattan melodrama. Another one that I feel like is similar uh, petrified forest. We had talked about earlier. Humphrey Bogart is very sexy in that. Um, and he's in a small role playing a gangster in that as well. Um, but it's Betty Davis. Um, it's very melodramatic. Uh, I feel like thematically you could fall for them both. Oh, Grand Hotel, um, too. You had said Joan Crawford earlier, and I wasn't thinking of this, but Grand Hotel would be probably a good feature as well. It shows the ups and downs of like a day in the life of this Grand Hotel. And then Stella Dallas giving everything for your child. I feel like you could also probably pair with this. Spoiler alert for Stella Dallas, but I mean, it came out a long time ago and come on, it's pop culture, people. All right. Do you have any double features that you can tell us about Anne and what we should watch Anne and, and or just like double features in general? Yeah. I mean, well, well, certainly Scarface, which I know we've already talked about, but Scarface, you know, Scarface is, is, is it is a quintessential pre-code. It is one of the greatest gangster films. You know, it is like a proto gang, you know, prototype gangster film. Um, she's in, absolutely incredible in it. Um but to pair with this one, there is a movie that Anne made in um, late 1933 that was released in 34. So it's one of the, it's, it's very much like late stage pre-code called Heat Lightning. Um, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, besides Scarface and Three on a Match, my favorite Anne film. And it is, it's directed by Mervyn Leroy. Um, it co-stars Aileen McMahon. So Anne has a smaller role, so she's not the star of it, but, um, she, you know, but she's wonderful in it. Aileen McMahon is just marvelous. Lyle Talbot's in it. Um, uh, Preston Foster, uh, Glenda Farrell's in it. it. It's just fantastic. And it's very much, it, it was based on a play. So, you know, it is, it's very dramatic and very dialogue heavy, but it's really fantastic. It was shot on location in Victorville. Um and it, it is very much in that same vein of Petrified Forest. So it gets compared to Petrified Forest a lot, um, but it came first. And so I, I, God, I love this movie. I love it so much. Um, and then there is another one, the one I had mentioned where Anne met Leslie Fenton, which was The Strange Love of Molly Louvain. So that is another pre-code. So that's 1932. It's one of the few movies in her career where she is the star. Like she is Molly Louvain. Um, it, it's a fun pre-code. Lee, Lee Tracy's in it playing like the, the snappy smart aleck, you know, newspaper guy and, you know, and Leslie Fenton's in it. And you have a couple of, you know, there's a scene early on between the two of them where she's working at a cigar counter of a hotel and he comes and the way they're looking at each other, man, like you can... Like it was real. It, it was absolutely real. So um, Molly Levate isn't the best pre-code certainly, but, um, but she's just fantastic in it. And so, you know, and it's just, you, you, you usually don't get to see that much Anne in one of Anne's movies. Um, and so that, that is why I love that one. And it's a movie that changed her life. Like watching people fall in love in real life on film, there's nothing better. It's magical. It's, it is totally magical. Um, and if you wanted to do kind of a, a double feature in a completely different direction, you could pair this with, you know, one of Anne's later films. And so um, I had mentioned A Life of Her Own, which is the MGM 1950 with Lana Turner. It, it is really a melodrama. And I, I've only sat through it I think twice, but Anne's performance is so incredible. And it's just, you know, these two incredibly high wire performances 
um, almost they're like 18 years apart. But to kind of see her career almost like book ended with these two high wire performances is just really fantastic. Um, but there's another one that I love. Uh, it's probably my favorite post-war film of hers is The Private Affairs of Bellamy. And it's with George Sanders being is like the caddiest of cad, caddy, cad, cad roles for George Sanders. Um, and Angela Lansbury is the star of a really young, young Angela Lansbury. Um, and so Anne is in it. And it, it is one of Anne's, I think, um, you know, because Anne's very good at playing the, the, this person with all of this, this energy, like leaping off of her. And she, you know, and that's how she is in Three on a Match and Scarface. In Private Affairs of Bellamy, it's the exact opposite. Like she is just an incredibly like reserved, understated, but also just really strong strong incredible person and so um, Madeline Forrester is her is her character's name in that and I just I love her performance because it is the polar opposite of of three on a match oh I'm sold oh I can't wait to watch it it has great costumes and great set design and for and for my birthday my friend Darren who I bonded with Ann Dvorak over he actually for my birthday gave me a skirt that Ann wears in the private affairs of Bellamy oh my gosh so wait, you made me think of one more question, which is like, what did Mervyn Leroy think of Anne Dvorak? Did he ever state anything about her? The only thing was just that quote about three on a match where, you know, he thought she had potential. Yeah, that was kind of it. I never, yeah, I, I haven't come across anything else that he said about well, her. I guess if he cast her all those years later, it wasn't a negative experience. I mean, she was on time. She said her lines. She's she on time and said on, on time and said her lines. But yeah, I mean, as you know, as much as we love three on a match and I think it just really resonates with us film fans now like at the time it came and went and that was Ugh. and that was the per and that was the purpose it, it served you know this film wasn't Casablanca it was you know it was just something that was going to run and just make a little bit of money for Warner Brothers it was like quick fast entertainment like how we might watch something on Netflix now absolutely churn it out make a few bucks you know Keep the keep the cattle working. Christina, this was amazing. I loved this conversation. I learned so much. It was so fun and entertaining. Thank you for being on this show. Um, how can people find you and how can they find your book? Yeah, so um, they, they can go to andavorak.com. That's my website that I've been running since 2002. So I don't, I, you know, I used to very actively blog on it. I don't know if people even blog anymore. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know that I've posted anything recently, but, you know, I have turned it just into a kind of a source for Anne Dvorak. So I've been collecting on her for, you know, well over 25 years and, you know, have thousands of photos. I probably have a couple thousand photos on her and, you know, just, hundreds of lobby cards and posters and all kinds of ephemera. And so, um, so I've digitized it up, up to a point. And then I think probably stopped once I kept buying stuff, but a lot of my stuff's online. So if you want to, you know, just see photos of Anne through the ages and um, the year the book came, the book came out in 2013. And I actually did a blog post every day for the entire year. So even though I'm not updating it, there's tons of Anne Dvorak content there. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, which is Christina Rice is my Instagram. And so I usually post, you know, new photos and lots of stuff about Girl Scout cookies because I'm, I'm a troop leader and my daughter is selling cookies right now. Um, yeah. And you can find, um, and of Hollywood was Forgotten Rebel, you can probably find, find anywhere you find your books. Um, you can go to the library there, you know, you can check it out. You can go to Amazon 
maybe not go to your local, you know, Larry Edmonds in Hollywood. They might Ooh, have Larry Edmonds. Yeah, they'd have it. I think he has copies right now. They might even be signed. And if you want it personalized, just tell him you want it personalized. And I live 10 minutes away and I'll go personalize it for you. I have no problem doing that. Um, and one day if I can get my act together, uh, I'll record an audiobook. I just haven't gotten my act together yet. One of these days you'll get around to it. And right now, I think three on a match. I mean, at least as of a week ago, if you subscribe to the Criterion channel, um, it was on there. Yeah, it's on right now. So you can kind of find, you can, you know, find her, you can find her movie streaming. Um, the Warner Archive, the Fantastic Warner Archive released a ton of her movies. So, you know, back when I was first researching her, it was impossible to find her movies. And I would get these like 10th generation VHS copies taped off of TNT in the 90s. But um, fortunately, Anne is a lot easier to find now. Thank goodness. Uh, well, Christina, it was wonderful chatting with you. And people at home, don't forget, the book is Anne Dvorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel. You can get it wherever books are sold. And um, Christina, it was such a delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you so much. And Anne is my heart, so I appreciate it. Well, everybody, we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Christina Rice. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Spotify for podcasters or anchor.fm because they are the same thing now to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.